located in the northwest portion of the city, Penn State Altoona can trace its roots back to 1939, when the Altoona Undergraduate Center opened in the old Webster Grade School building, a four-story structure constructed in 1870 on the corner of Lexington Avenue and 10th Street. A second downtown building, the old Madison Grade School at 6th Avenue and 7th Street, was purchased for use as a science center the following year. After the Second World War, as men returned home from the battlefield, both buildings soon became overfilled and admission was limited to students living within 30 miles of the city. The Altoona Graduate Center's advisory board began looking for a newer and larger space, and the solution to this problem came in 1947 when the advisory board purchased a defunct 38-acre amusement park known as Ivyside. The Ivyside Park campus continued to expand over the years, with the advisory board purchasing adjacent land as it became available. Today, the Penn State Altoona campus covers over 171 acres and contains over 30 buildings. At the heart of the campus is a reflecting pool, the last surviving remnant of a warming dam which once fed Ivyside Park's massive concrete swimming pool. There is one particularly sad tragedy associated with the old Ivyside pool. A tragedy involving a distraught mother who drowned herself and her two children one spring evening in 1930. Long before the first concession stand or amusement park ride was built, Ivyside was a popular woodland picnic area and swimming hole used by local church groups fire companies, and other civic organizations. This picnic area was part of Ivyside Farm, which was owned by a devout Christian named Louis Gwynn. A small dam was erected on Spring Run, creating a mill pond, and a large ice house operated by the Gwynn brothers stood near the site until 1909, when it was destroyed by fire. The earliest reference to Ivyside as a park comes from the Altoona Tribune of July 21, 1897, which listed Ivyside as the site of the annual picnic of the Chestnut Avenue Methodist Episcopal Church. By the early 1900s, the park featured a baseball diamond and a guest cottage, and was serviced by a narrow-gauge railroad. In 1923, the growing popularity of the automobile inspired one member of the Gwynn family to transform the rustic picnic grounds into a resort. A group of prominent businessmen, headed by Harry C. Gwynn, set aside 30 acres, upon which a dance hall, tennis courts, and pavilions were erected. The focal point of the resort, however, was an enormous swimming pool. Measuring 620 feet in length and nearly 200 feet in width, the pool boasted a steel diving tower, a white sand beach, and an island with seven trees in its center. Nearly three million gallons of water from ice-cold spring run were required to fill the pool. And to keep the water at a comfortable temperature, Gwyn, who was a civil engineer by trade, constructed a shallow basin to warm the water before it was released into the pool. Fifteen hours were required to fill the pool and a full 24 hours were required to drain it. Construction of the pool and bathhouse, 
which was supervised by John Hammond, required 200,000 feet of timber, 3,000 barrels of cement, and 3,500 barrels of shale. At the time of its completion, the pool at Ivyside was heralded as the largest concrete swimming pool in the world. Although construction of the pool was still incomplete, Ivyside Park opened to great fanfare on June 26, 1924, with buses departing Altoona every hour and employees handing out free coffee, lemonade, and lollipops. The pool and bathhouse opened on August 9th. The two-story bathhouse contained 1,000 private lockers on the first floor and a whopping 2,000 dressing rooms on the second floor. Six lifeguards were stationed at the pool at all times. By the following year, the park featured a roller coaster named the Skyrocket and a children's aeroplane swing. It would later add a skating rink, bowling alley, shooting galleries, and a merry-go-round. The first drowning at the Ivyside Pool occurred on June 27, 1925, when eight-year-old James McCauley sank into the water without a sound or a struggle. It was a strange death, as the child's body was lying at the bottom of the pool and showed no signs of cramping. This led physicians to believe that the boy must have suffered heart failure before drowning. A similar death occurred in July of 1926, when 24-year-old Virgil Martin died while diving into the deep end of the pool. However, considering the vast number of swimmers and bathers who visited the park, tragedies at Ivyside were far and few between. But, of the small number of tragedies which took place at Ivyside, none were as sensational as the deaths of Catherine Stamen and her two young children in May of 1930. Pennsylvania Oddities will return after this brief message. When I want to hear stories about the odd and bizarre, I listen to the Pennsylvania Oddities podcast. But when I want to buy something that's odd and bizarre, I go to www.shopphantasmagoria.com. Phantasmagoria Antiques and Oddities is an online oddity store showcasing hand-selected items from some of the darker and stranger parts of history. Phantasmagoria buys and sells rare and unique items from the Victorian era up to the swinging 60s. From medical oddities and rare books to fine photography, artwork, and one-of-a-kind decor items, Phantasmagoria has got something for every taste, so long as it's a taste for the bazaar. Visit www.shopphantasmagoria.com and be sure to follow at Phantasmagoria Oddities on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest to stay on top of the new items as they arrive. International shipping is also available. Phantasmagoria is where I go to add to my own personal collection of oddities, and you should too. That's www.shopphantasmagoria.com. A.R. McGee, a driver for the Logan Valley Bus Company, was working the evening shift on Thursday, May 29th. At 9.55 that evening, McGee stopped at 11th Avenue and 12th Street. A woman dressed in black boarded the bus with her two small children and took a seat among the 20 or so passengers. At the next stop, at 12th Avenue and 16th Street, McGee noticed that the woman was sitting contentedly, writing a note onto a piece of paper while her children happily munched popcorn. The bus driver, being of an observant nature and having driven the same route for years, 
was curious, as most of the passengers were regulars on his route. He knew their names and faces as well as those of his own family, but he had never seen this woman before. The three strangers finally descended from the bus at the Ivy Park station, the mother leading her children by the hand into the darkness. McGee concluded that the woman must be visiting a relative near the park. He thought no more about the matter until the following morning. It was some time around 7.30 on the morning of May 30th, 1930, when a group of boys playing around the breast of the park pool stumbled across a woman's coat, hat, and umbrella. Nearby, they found a child's tam-o'-shanter bonnet, partially filled with popcorn. The curious boys made a closer inspection and discovered a pocketbook containing two handwritten notes. Both notes were identical, and both were addressed to the same man, John Stamen. But it was the content of the notes which caused the boys to run away screaming for help. The note read, I have drowned myself and the two children. John, I hope you will forgive me. Please notify my relatives. I have $10 in a savings bank in Altoona. I love you. The boy's alarm was heard by workmen at the park, who rushed to the pool and quickly located the body of a woman in five feet of water. The body of a boy was found shortly thereafter at a depth of three feet. Though it was obvious the victims were dead, the workmen immediately summoned a physician, then resumed their search for the third body. The search was still going on when coroner Chester Rothrock reached the scene. Rothrock ordered several rowboats to be placed into the pool, but despite several hours of searching, the third body could not be found. At around noon, John Stamen was located at his brother's house on 6th Street. He soon arrived at the park and identified the bodies as those of his 37-year-old wife Catherine and their 4-year-old son, John Kenneth. Their daughter, two-year-old Catherine Edwina, was still somewhere beneath the cold water. Coroner Rothrock instructed park workmen to drain the pool. The gates were thrown open and the water rapidly flowed out, but the immense size of the pool made this a painfully slow process. Gordon Smith, one of the lifeguards, made repeated dives into the deeper waters, but the painfully cold water soon brought an attack of cramps. Another lifeguard attempted the same method, but he, too, was seized by cramps. As the water slowly drained, the two lifeguards armed themselves with rakes and dragged the bottom of the pool from a rowboat. It wasn't until 1.30 in the afternoon when Gordon Smith found the body of the missing girl in the deep end of the pool. Held clenched in her hand were a few kernels of popcorn. By this time, word of the tragedy had spread throughout the city, and hundreds of curiosity seekers had surrounded the pool when the limp form of the little girl was finally dragged out of the water. Park workmen immediately covered the body with blankets and carried it away from the gawking onlookers to the bathhouse. Undertaker Otto Gilden took charge of the bodies and removed them to his funeral parlor at 8th Avenue and 13th Street. 
When A.R. McGee learned of the triple tragedy at Ivyside, he contacted Coroner Rothrock and told him about the mysterious passengers he had picked up the night before. McGee went to the Gildan Funeral Parlor and identified the three victims as those who had boarded his bus at the 11th Avenue and 12th Street bus stop. Based on McGee's timeline, the coroner concluded that Catherine Stamen, after removing her hat and coat and placing her belongings on the breast of the dam, walked to the pool's diving board with a child under each arm. After dropping her children into the water, Catherine stepped off the diving board and into eternity. Oddly, though two night watchmen were on duty until midnight, neither had seen anyone enter the park, nor had they heard a sound. Not the sound of children laughing or crying, not a cry for help, not even the sound of a splash in the darkness. Upon being questioned by the coroner, John Stamen was able to shed some light on the mystery of Catherine's rash behavior. At 7.30 on Thursday evening, just a few hours before she boarded McGee's bus, Catherine had appeared as a plaintiff before Alderman Robert A. Conrad of the 4th Ward, having accused her husband of assault and battery and non-support. The two children had accompanied Catherine to the hearing, along with her attorney, John Haberstroh. Alderman Conrad concluded the hearing by referring the case to the county court, instructing John and Catherine to appear in Hollidaysburg at 9 o'clock on Monday morning. According to Alderman Conrad, Catherine Stamen wept bitterly during the hearing, declaring that she had no food left in her house. Her husband had left home after their last quarrel, taking up residence with a brother on 6th Street. John Stamen neither protested his innocence nor admitted his guilt. But, for some reason, his wife found life too unbearable to make it through the weekend, and apparently didn't hold out much hope of a Blair County judge ruling in her favor. Catherine, who was previously married to a railroad policeman, was no stranger to tragedy. Her first husband, Joseph Lintner, had been killed in an accident seven years earlier at the 9th Street Rail Yard. One can only imagine the emotional stress which must have accumulated inside of her for years, finally reaching the point where death seemed to offer the only relief from her burden. In her mind, Catherine no doubt believed that she was saving her children from a cold, cruel world, which had gifted her nothing but sadness and pain. After Coroner Rothrock announced that no inquest would be held, the bodies of Catherine and her children were placed in three white coffins and remained at the funeral home until Sunday evening, June 1st, when they were shipped on the 642 train to the home of Catherine's mother in Lancaster County. It was reported that over 3,000 people filed through the doors of the Gildan Funeral Home to view the bodies. On Monday, June 2nd, funeral services were held at the Groff Funeral Home in Lancaster, where hundreds more paid their final respects to the victims of one of Altoona's most heartbreaking tragedies. Afterwards, their bodies were laid to rest at Lancaster Cemetery. John Stamen, who was also a native of Lancaster County, never remarried and died in 1960. His bones repose not alongside his wife or children, but in a solitary grave at Rose Hill Cemetery in Altoona.
As for the fate of Ivyside Park, the gilded dream of Harry C. Gwynn died in 1946, one year after the death of the park's longtime manager and Gwynn's business partner, E. Raymond Smith. In August of that year, Smith's widow reached an agreement to sell the land to the Altoona Undergraduate Center. After the sale was finalized, the park's skyrocket roller coaster was torn down and its wood sold by the school's advisory board. Yet one chilling reminder of the 1930 triple tragedy, the old warming dam of Ivyside's world-famous swimming pool, still remains as a focal point of the Penn State Altoona campus. If you enjoyed this podcast, pick up a copy of my newest book, Pennsylvania Oddities, Volume 3, available now at www.sunverypress.com. Volume 3 features 30 remarkable but true stories from every corner of the Keystone State. And be sure to visit my blog, paoddities.blogspot.com, for over 600 bizarre tales of murder and mystery from the colonial era to the present day. The Pennsylvania Oddities Podcast is written, produced, and narrated by Marlon Bressy. Theme music composed by Marlon Bressy. Sound effects courtesy of freesound.org. Listen to the Pennsylvania Oddities Podcast on Anchor, Breaker, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and anywhere else you find your favorite program. New episodes on a 1st and 15th of every month. Okay.